since October of last year, it, it seems like that um, not a day or not a week goes by that we don't see some sort of a headline, some sort of a uh, some sort of a headline, some sort of a reminder about this movement that we have been in for the last well, since at least last October. Uh, last October, this movement, uh, so-called, uh, at least as a named movement, started last October when an actress named Alyssa Milano posted a tweet that said, quote, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. Well, from that point on, I mean, it absolutely started a social media firestorm. From that point on, it, the hashtag MeToo, whether you're on social media or whether social media is the farthest thing from your mind, you still have heard the words MeToo. And you still have heard of this movement that has been raging for the last several months. You know, hardly a week goes by that we don't hear of a new accusation about somebody that is one of these big names in the media. I mean, we've heard accusations, names like Harvey Weinstein, Mario Batali, Al Franken, Bill Cosby, Matt Lauer, the USA Gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. All of those have flooded the headlines. Even this week, the CBS, the head of uh, CBS, Les Moonves, has been uh, talked about in the area of sexual harassment. And lest we think it's something that's far off, that's a Hollywood problem, it has impacted our Southern Baptist community uh, profoundly as well. Not just in the Southern Baptist community, but it has impacted all of evangelicalism quite profoundly. It seems like not a week goes by that not a, that another pastor or another staff member or another denominational leader is implicated in some sort of a sexual harassment accusation. But in the midst of that, this hashtag Me Too has become a rallying cry. It's become much more than just a post on social media. It's become a movement. It's become so much of a movement that even last year, Time Magazine named the, quote, silence breakers as their person, as their 2017 person of the year. So Me Too was even the person of the year for Time Magazine. Now, I have no doubt that this movement, that the awareness that all of this that has happened, I have no doubt that it might be accomplishing some positive things. It's certainly a positive thing when sin comes to light, when sin is no longer able to fester in a in the dark recesses somewhere. It's always a good thing when sin is brought to light. So I have no doubt that this movement has sparked some uh, some good things, some positive things. But I think that it's also had the tendency to rally people around victimhood. Listen to me. Even the most, the most pitiable victim of the most horrible abuse that you can imagine does not need to seek their identity in victimhood. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now let me start by saying 
you know, lest there's any confusion whatsoever. Let me start by saying abuse of any kind is absolutely wrong. Abuse of any kind is absolutely intolerable. Whether it's physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, abuse is wrong and cannot be tolerated. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, I want you to listen to me. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, you need to do two things immediately. The first thing you need to do is you need to get out of that relationship. You need to leave. The second thing that you need to do is you need to tell somebody. You don't need a movement to do that. You don't need a rallying cry. You don't need a hashtag to do that. What you need is you need safety and you need security. And I can tell you that our church is here to help you. We're not here to hide from. Our church is here to help you. Miranda and I can help you. If any of you are in that kind of a situation, don't be scared. Don't be silent. You may have been victimized, but you don't have to remain a victim. Amen? If you look around our little congregation, you might think that, well, you know, this, how does this apply to us? This is a problem that's out there, right? Let me give you some statistics. Here's, here's the reality. The reality is that one in ten children is sex, are, are sexually abused before the age of 18. One in ten. One in seven of those abusive relationships happen during the school day, away from home. At least one in six men have been sexually abused or assaulted in their lifetime. Now those numbers are absolutely horrifying until you hear the numbers, until you hear the statistics about women in our society. One out of every four women in this country will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One out of every four. You include those who are sexually harassed by unwanted touching, stalking, flashing, sexting, verbal harassment, any of those kind of things. The statistics go as far as saying over 80% of women are sexually harassed or abused during their lifetime. See, this isn't just us sitting in here talking about folks out there. This isn't just folks sitting in our little sheltered world, our little sheltered church, our little sheltered area saying, well, all those people are in Hollywood. No, this isn't saying that. I have no doubt that some of you, if not many of you, have been victimized in your lifetime. For that... I am so sorry. But here's what I want you to know this morning. I want you to know that your identity is not in your victimhood. That's not who you are. 
your identity is that you have eternal worth and value because you have been uniquely and specially created in the image of God. And because you have inherent eternal worth and value, God loves you so much that He not only specially and uniquely created you, He loves you so much that He sent His Son to die in your place so that you might have a relationship with Him, an unbreakable relationship with Him. That's how special you are. That is your identity. That's who you are. Your identity is ultimately in Christ. Your identity is not in your circumstances, your upbringing, your background, your mistakes, your hardships. Your identity is not in something that somebody has done to you, or your identity is not in something that you may have done to somebody else. Your identity is ultimately in Christ. You may have been victimized, but your identity doesn't have to be a victim. So ladies, here's what I want us to do here this morning. I want us to start our own Me Too movement. A movement that's not centered on victimhood. A movement that's not rallying around abusive victimhood, but a movement that's rallying around biblical womanhood. Our passage this morning focuses on a lady who was the first Christian convert in Europe. This lady, Lydia, was instrumental in planting the church in Philippi. Actually, the church was physically planted in her home. That's how instrumental she was in this first church in Europe. She was the first convert, and she was part of the church planting team. And it was from Philippi, it was from that area, it led to the gospel being spread all throughout Europe. We, as a church in America, could trace our lineage back to that first church in Europe. So we could trace our lineage back to this lady Lydia. You know, I find it interesting, last week in the passage that we looked at, when Paul was in Troas and he got the vision, do you remember the vision that God gave him? He gave him a vision of a man in Macedonia. Isn't it interesting that the first convert in Macedonia was a woman. <laughs> I just find that, I find that fascinating. The first person who got saved was a woman. And that woman was an example of biblical womanhood named Lydia. So let's read our passage again. Now, you're going to have to keep your Bibles open in your laps because we're going to bounce back and forth uh, through this passage and it's not uh, going to be able to be uh, following us on the screen. So keep your Bibles open. Acts 16, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. By the way, you can follow and you can trace all of this route out on the map that's in your, in your bulletin. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. By the way, that if there, there are two different kinds of ifs in the Greek language. And there's a, there's a conditional if, and then there's a, a, an if of, of understanding. We could just as easily translate this as since or because. This is an if, and we know it to be the case. If, and we know it to be the case, that you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we got to remember where we are. We got to take a step back and remember where we are throughout all of this. To remember that Paul and Silas had had steadily moved west from the time that they had spent uh, at their the most recent time at their sending church in Antioch. So they left the church at Antioch, and they had been steadily heading west. They picked up Timothy along the way, and and they were going through and encouraging and strengthening the churches that they had planted on the first missionary journey as they had come through. So they picked up Timothy along the way and, and all of that. And then they finished the first leg of their trip. They tried to head south into Asia Minor, but God shut the door there. So they bounced off that door and tried to head north into Bithynia, but God shut the door there again. So they just kept heading west until they got, uh, until they got to the coast, till they got to this town of Troas. And it was in Troas that Luke joined them. So now they've got four men on their team. They've got Paul and Silas and Timothy that they picked up along the way. Now they've got Luke with them. And it was there that Paul had that vision of the man in Macedonia, the man in Macedonia who said, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they got in a boat, headed across the Aegean Sea in the direction that God called them to go. Verse 11 says that they made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now, if you look at the map there in your bulletin, you can see that Samothrace is really just a dot right there in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's a dot on the map there. In reality, it's not just an island. It's a mountain that sticks up out of the water some 5,900 feet over a mile in the air. And it's really used as kind of a landmark through the area. It's not really an inhabitable island. It's just kind of a stop-off along the way. So they sailed for a day till they got to Samothrace. They stayed there overnight. And then they headed, kept heading west to uh, the, the Macedonian city of Neapolis. After all the closed doors they experienced along the way, it's, it's fascinating here that God opened the door in such a way that he sped them along. God opened this door wide. It was almost to give them assurance that, yes, those doors were closed, but now you're heading in the direction that I want you to go. Verse 11 says that they made a direct voyage. That was a technical nautical term. It means that they had perfect sailing conditions. It meant that the wind was firmly at their back. Matter of fact, later on in the book of Acts, when they go back the other direction, it took them four days to go back what takes them, or four or five days. You can correct me later when you go back and read it. But it took them four or five days to go back this journey that takes them two days to get there. In other words, when they were obedient to go in the direction that God called them to go, he got them there in a hurry. Now, that doesn't always happen, but it's always good confirmation when it does, isn't it? And they got this good confirmation along the way. Once they landed in Neapolis, they, they quickly walked 
that there's a, it's a 10-mile journey up the Ignatian Way from, from, uh, from Neapolis up to Philippi, the Ignatian Road. It was a Roman-built road. It was a, a beautifully smooth path. So once again, they continued along this just smooth journey to get to where, where they were going. And along that Ignatian Road, of course, I haven't been there, but the things that I read say that it was a beautiful, lush valley on either side of this road. So they had a nice, calm, beautiful trip that 10 miles as they walked along that journey. And then when they got to Philippi, verse 12 says that Philippi is a leading city and a Roman colony. So in other words, this wasn't just some podunk place. This wasn't just some backwater place. It was a very prosperous city. It was a prosperous city because they were well known for their gold mines. Gold mines have always been a big deal, right? So it was very prosperous. It was home to one of the most famous schools, famous medical schools of the area. So it was prosperous. It was educated. It was, it was a cosmopolitan city. Plus it was where a lot of Roman military veterans would, when they retired from service, they would go to Philippi just because of the, uh, the wonderful climate and the wonderful things that were going on there. And then on top of all of that, even though the people of Philippi, they weren't Romans, they'd been granted the same rights and privileges of Roman citizens. Now, that's going to become very important in a few weeks when we see what happened to Paul and Silas when they went to prison. But these people of Philippi, they had high standing in the Roman Empire. It was a beautiful place. It was a prosperous place. It was influential. It was very, very strategic. The way traveling there had been easy. It had been smooth. That didn't mean it was going to be easy when they got there. As you study the book of Acts, you see that Paul's pattern when he would enter a new city, his pattern was the first place that he would go was the synagogue. He knew that people had been trained in the Old Testament scriptures, so that was where he would go to start preaching the gospel. But that wasn't possible when they got to Philippi. Even though this city was a, was a beautiful cosmopolitan city, they didn't even have a synagogue in that city. They didn't have a synagogue in that city because there were fewer than 10 Jewish men who were familiar with the Old Testament living in that city. So even the importance, even the the grandeur of that city, it had not been touched by the Bible at all. Now, it's all kind of speculation why there were fewer than 10 godly Jewish male heads of household in that city. But the bottom line is there were fewer than 10 men around who knew anything about the God of the Bible. So since there wasn't a synagogue in the city, you can look at verse 13. Verse 13 says that Paul and his crew, they actually left Philippi again and went down along the river until they found a prayer meeting happening. This prayer meeting was a group of ladies there by the riverside. And it was there that they met this special lady named Lydia. Lydia probably had every right to rally those ladies around victimhood. But she didn't. What did she rally them around? What were they doing by the river? They were praying. 
She rallied them around prayer. The reason I said Lydia probably had every right to rally those ladies around victimhood, when you study about who Lydia was, first, Lydia was an immigrant. And second, she was a single working mother. In those days, that wasn't nearly as common as it is now. Now, we don't know for sure why she had no husband. He probably died while they were there in Thyatira. He was probably part of a well-known guild of dye makers there in Thyatira that had been established there. Purple dye, it says that Lydia worked with this purple fabric. In those days, purple dye, and I thank God it's not true now since that's my wife's favorite color, but purple dye in those days was very, extremely expensive. That's why it was the color of royalty. It was expensive to make. It was expensive to sell. It was made from, you ready for a little, little science history lesson? I just had, had a ball discovering this. How they made this purple dye back then, it was from a little shellfish. And if I could pronounce the Latin name, I, I would, but just let's, let's settle with shellfish, should we? It, it was made from this little shellfish. And they would catch this shellfish, and from each little shellfish, they could extract one drop of dye. <laughs> one drop. So you can imagine how much, how many of these shellfish and how much of the extraction process, I don't know if you milk a shellfish, I don't know what you do, but they would do whatever they had to do to get this one drop of purple dye out of each of these little shellfish, and that was how they would come up with enough dye to dye the fabric for royalty. And these shellfish, even though they were, they were all throughout the area, the best shellfish were in the waters outside of Thyatira. That was the purple dye that would last the longest. It was the kind, I guess, that wouldn't wash off and make your whites turn lavender. <laughs> it would stick and it would stay. So Thyatira was famous for this purple dye and they had a guild which was basically like a very exclusive union that would produce this dye. That was the business that Lydia's husband there in Thyatira would have been in. When he died, in order to support her family, Lydia probably took over the business. But as was the nature of guilds in those days, these very powerful, very strict unions of these days, a woman could have very easily been blackballed. It wasn't a common thing for a woman to be running a business, especially in that kind of environment, especially the widow of a Jewish proselyte, which is what her husband would have been. Now, that's probably what would have caused Lydia to have to pack up her children and her household and head across the Aegean Sea and move to Philippi. She was more than likely victimized because of her gender, but she refused to play the victim. She took her expertise, she took her determination, she took her business acumen, and she set up a high-end fabric retailer in that thriving metropolis of Philippi. Apparently, she did very well for herself. 
Later on, when it describes her household, it talks about her household, and it talks about her household servants. Her household uh, was was prosperous enough that she could have her own, own servants. It was also large enough that she could house at least these four men, and then later on house the church in her home. So she was apparently doing very well for herself there in Philippi. But all of that, I tell you all of that, just to give you the background to the story. Just to remind you that Lydia's identity was not in the fact that she was a widow. Lydia's identity was not in the fact that she was an immigrant. Lydia's identity was not in the fact that she was struggling through life as a single mom. Lydia's identity was not even in the fact that she was being a successful businesswoman. Lydia's identity was not in the fact that she was puffing up and saying that she was a self-made, prosperous businesswoman. Lydia's identity was not in either being a victim or in being an overcomer. It wasn't her identity. What does verse 14 say that her identity was? Verse 14 says that she was, her identity was that she was a worshiper of God. And as a worshiper of God, she welcomed that gospel message that Paul was preaching by the, by the river that day. Paul would always start preaching by preaching the Old Testament and then he would move to the gospel. (coughs) So as a worshiper of God, she was familiar with the Old Testament and she welcomed what she heard Paul preach by the river that day. She paid close attention. She wasn't distracted by all the ways that she'd been hurt in life. She wasn't so full of herself for her prosperity and all that she'd overcome to be too proud to hear what he was preaching. No, there on the riverside, she submitted herself to the preaching of the Word of God. And when she submitted herself to the preaching of the Word of God, you see what God did to her? He opened her heart, didn't He? God opened her heart to respond to what she heard, and she was saved. And when she was saved, she immediately testified to what Jesus had done in her life in the waters of baptism. So she submitted, she heard, she believed, and she responded. And then she followed that by being instrumental in the planting of the church there in Philippi. Yes, Lydia had been victimized, but she didn't identify herself as a victor, as a victim. She overcame some very difficult circumstances, but she didn't identify herself as some sort of an overcomer. She identified herself first and foremost as a worshiper of God. And after she received Jesus as her Lord and Master and Savior, she identified herself as a believer, as a godly woman. So from Lydia's example in this passage, I see five traits of a woman whose identity is in the right place. First, a godly woman is, in, <clears throat> is independent. And talking about godly women gets me choked up, I guess. <clears throat> a godly woman is independent. I, I meet... Um, it's heartbreaking how many young ladies I meet today who are needy. You know, do you know what I mean by needy? Because they're needy, they'll bounce from school to school or from job to job or from man to man, 
hoping to find something or someone outside of themselves that will fulfill them. Listening. I don't care who you are. You're not going to find fulfillment. You're not going to find complete fulfillment in your job. You're not going to find complete fulfillment in a man. And all the wives in the house say amen. Right? You're only going to find complete fulfillment in Christ. I can't tell you how many marriage counselings I've done where after a few years the unfulfilled expectations because they expected their spouse to fulfill every one of their needs and desires. You're only going to find complete fulfillment in Christ. You're not going to find it in a job or a man or a school or a career or anything else. So chase after Him. Chase after Jesus. Don't chase after anything else. Chase after Jesus. You know those Disney princesses? They'll tell you to chase after your dreams, won't they? That's a lie from the pits of hell. Sorry for all the Disney fans in the house. (laughs) See, because if you chase after your dreams, the book of Ecclesiastes would tell you that you're chasing after vanity. Chase after Jesus. Chase after Jesus. The Bible promises that he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now that might or might not include a man. It might or might not include a career. It might or might not include a family. It might or might not include any of the things that you might have on your list of your desires right now. But when you chase after Jesus, he'll change your desires so that your desires match his and he will meet and exceed your desires. When you chase hard after Jesus, he will give you complete fulfillment and contentment in him. So a godly woman is independent. A godly woman is also industrious. You know, Lydia, Lydia, in a day where this was not the norm, where this was far from the norm, Lydia took her experience, she took her resources, she took her expertise, she took her family, she loaded them in a boat and headed to Philippi. Left everything that she knew and headed to Philippi. She didn't, she could, how easily would it have been for her to sit in Thyatira and whine? She didn't sit in Thyatira whining that the guilds wouldn't let her have a job. She didn't just sit and sulk in her loneliness after the loss of her husband. She didn't wait for charity or pity or a hashtag activist to come help her out. No, she was industrious. She did what she needed to do to provide for herself and her family. She took initiative. She sought out opportunities. She took advantage of those opportunities. She overcame her setbacks, and she became an entrepreneur. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all godly women are supposed to be entrepreneurs. But I am saying that godly women are supposed to be industrious. My grandmother, godly woman that she was, was about the farthest thing that you could find from an entrepreneur. But she was the most industrious woman that I ever met. She was industrious in the way that she purchased and maintained a home in McDowell County while my coal mining papa was off in Europe 
in the war. And she did it with no money. She did it with no public assistance. And she did it with a brand new baby. Stories that she would tell me, she'd always say, she said, you know, we bought a car one time on time. Right? In other words, she got a loan for a car. And she said, after I saw how much we paid for that car, we never bought anything on time ever again. Now, did she ever work outside the home? No. Did she ever start a business? No. But she was, she was industrious. That's independent and industrious. Godly woman's also inspirational. You ever wondered how that Riverside prayer meeting got started? They didn't have a pastor sitting up there saying, uh, you ladies, you need, to, you need to start a women's Bible study. Would somebody volunteer to start a women's Bible study? Somebody start a prayer group? We'll have a sign-up sheet. Start. No, they didn't have any of that, did they? You think about it. There weren't any Jewish men in town. At least there were fewer than ten of them. There was no biblical influence to speak of. Lydia was a Gentile who had been part of a Jewish community there in Thyatira. More than likely, her husband had been a Jewish proselyte. When Lydia left that Jewish community in Thyatira and headed back to Philippi, she brought her love of Yahweh, brought her love of the the God of the Old Testament with her from Thyatira into this godless place of Philippi. And out of that love of God and out of her desire to worship Him, because it says that she was a worshiper of God, out of that she probably inspired the other ladies around her that she had contact with to go pray with her. A godly woman inspires other ladies to gather with her in prayer. She inspires other ladies to gather with her in Bible study. She inspires other ladies to gather with her in discipleship, in worship, and in witness. A godly woman is inspirational. A godly woman is also investigative. You know, Lydia... Bless her heart for all that she overcame and her wealth and position that she had had crafted for herself there in Philippi. It would have been very easy for her to sit back and think she had it all figured out, wouldn't it? But she didn't. She was open to the fact that there was more for her to know. There was this group of ladies gathered by the riverside and more than likely... It wasn't like they had a copy of their own of Scripture. It wasn't like they had a copy of the Bible to read. So they were there, gathered by the river, gathered there to pray. But when somebody came in their midst, can you imagine this group of four men and plus whoever they had with them come strolling up the river and start proclaiming the Word of God to them? She didn't sit back and say, well, I've got this all figured out, did she? No, she was investigative. She investigated what she heard. She not only listened to investigate what was said, she finished her investigation by applying the truth of what she heard. Verse 14 says that the Holy, in verse 14, the the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to use different verb tenses than those that show up in our English translations. Here, here's how just 
the reason they use different verb tenses in the English is because it sounds awkward to say, but I'm just going to say it awkward so we get the picture of what's going on in verse 14 there. Verse 14, it, it, it says that Lydia continued to listen. In other words, she was listening. She was very eager to investigate the teaching that she was hearing. She was listening in a continuing way. And God once for all opened her heart. In other words, God gave her eyes to see and to hear the truth that she was eager to listen to. And then she applied in a once-for-all tense. She applied her mind and received the things that were being said. In other words, as she was listening and receiving the gospel, as she was receiving the words of the gospel, God opened up her heart and she received it and applied it to her life. She believed the gospel. She received Jesus Christ as her Lord and Master and Savior. See, a godly woman investigates Scripture. A godly woman will sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. A godly woman will submit herself to what Scripture said. A godly woman will also submit herself to the teaching and preaching of her pastor. She takes what she hears. She studies the Bible to make sure what he says is true. But then when her investigation is complete, a godly woman applies what she hears. Doesn't just walk off and say, well, that was a good 45 minutes. And that leads to the next trait of a godly woman. A godly woman doesn't keep the truth of the gospel to herself. A godly woman is evangelistic. Verse 15 says that not only was Lydia baptized, her whole household was baptized as well. And household, when it's used that way, is not talking just about her children. It's talking about her children, her household servants, uh, any extended family that was living with her, basically everybody in her household. Now, do you know what that means? That means that she had to share the gospel with them. Because they weren't there by the riverside, were they? They weren't gathered in prayer at the riverside, hearing the gospel preached from Paul. But they were home when Lydia got home. And when Lydia got home, she told them how she had been saved that day. She told them what had happened to her. Now... (laughs) I I am under no illusion that when she got home, she was able to remember word for word what Paul had preached to her by the river. I doubt very seriously that she was taking dictation. And I know that she didn't have a podcast to go back and play it. So, but the point isn't that she remembered word for word what she had heard from the mouth of Paul that day. But she knew what Jesus had done for her, right? She knew how he had taken her heart of stone. And replaced it with a heart of flesh. He knew how God opened her heart to hear the word. And she knew how she received Jesus as her Lord and Master and Savior. And she was able to go home and tell it. She shared it with her family. And when she shared it with her family, the beautiful thing is, is that they listened. And as they listened, the same thing happened to them. As they listened to the word, God opened their hearts to heed and apply what she said. And they believed and were saved, and they followed that by following Lydia into the waters of baptism. A godly woman is evangelistic. So that's five characteristics of a 
godly woman. Now, men in the house, you might think that you've gotten off. <laughs> As I cracked the microphone. Men in the house, you might think that you've gotten off easy this morning. But I've got a word for you. And I want you to get your pencil and I want you to write this verse off in the margin of your scripture, of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 tells us how we are to honor the ladies, specifically, <clears throat> specifically our wives. But I think that we can broaden that to our sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that we are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now guys, when you look that up at home, don't go home and circle that word weaker and try to apply meaning to that that's not there. That, that word weaker that's used, I'll finish the verse, or show honor to the women as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with us of the grace of life so that our prayers may not be hindered. And when Paul calls ladies the weaker vessel there, he's, he's not giving some sort of an assessment of physical or emotional or spiritual strength or weakness. That word weakness that's used there, it's used to describe preciousness. It's hard to say that without going all Lord of the Rings and, you know, the, the, the ring that was, was precious. I will avoid being Gollum. But it's an assessment of value. It's not an assessment of physical or emotional or spiritual strength. Think of it this way. A fine crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic tumbler. Right? Men, we're more like plastic tumbler than fine crystal. That means we are to respect the godly women in our homes. We're to hold them up as precious and valuable. We're to see the inherent beauty that God has created them with. And we're to allow them to accent and to show off that spiritual and gifted beauty that God has given them. We're to respect the godly women in this church. We're to protect the godly women in this church. And we are to honor the godly women in this church. Listen, guys, we don't ever need to be threatened by their independence, by their industriousness, by their inspiration, by their investigation. We don't ever need to be threatened by questions, investigative questions. We don't ever need to be threatened certainly by their evangelism. As a matter of fact, we need to encourage it. We need to value it. We need to treasure it. Women who lead and speak and teach and pray and participate and evangelize are not usurping anything. They're to be valued. And ladies, back to you. You need to understand that God's design is perfect. God has created you with infinite worth because He created you in His image. And because of that, He loved you so much that He sent His only Son to die in your place 
and rose again so that you can have new life in Him. That's how much, that's how valuable you are. You have infinite worth. In your home, you're called to submit to the godly leadership of your husband. In your church, you're called to spiritually submit to the godly leadership in your church. You're not called to be a husband. You're not called to be a pastor. But you are called to be a godly woman. There's a difference in value and roles. God has given us the roles that He has because it's His perfect design. It's not something to be rebelled about, rebelled against. You're called to be a godly woman. No matter what your background or difficulty that you've had in the past, you're not called to be a victim. You're not called to be a movement. You're not called to be a trend. You're not called to be a hashtag. You're called to be independent. You're called to be industrious. You're called to be inspirational. You're called to be investigative. And you're called mostly to be evangelistic. Here's the reality. We talked about earlier in the service how God gives each of us to the church the gifts that He gives each of us for the building up of this body in Christ. Ladies, we can't do this without you. We can't. God has given you as a gift to His church for the building up of His work here. Now that's something that we can all say me too. Too, can't we? That's something that we can all rally around. And that's something that I hope that we all will rally around. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your design. I thank you for your gifts. Father, I thank you how you have, how you are giving us everything as a church that we need to accomplish the mission that you've given us. Father, keep us from getting distracted. Father, keep us from being distracted by social trends or movements or any of those kinds of things. Father, help us to find our sufficiency and our worth in Christ. Father, may we chase after Jesus. Father, may we submit to His Word. Father, out of that and through that, would You help us to love each other the way that You called us to and to serve You the way You called us to. Father, Your design is perfect. Father, help us to trust You in that. And Lord, if there's anyone here, male, female, if there's anyone in here who has suffered or is suffering abuse, Father, help them to see the way out. Father, you've said that there is nothing, there is no sin that we would encounter that you that Your Spirit will not give us a way out. Father, if there's anyone in that kind of a situation, Father, would Your Spirit show them the way out? 
Father, if there's anyone who has experienced abuse in the past and is carrying those scars with them, Father, I'd ask that You would show them that that's not their identity. Father, show them that Jesus carries the scars of the cross to give them freedom from that. Father, for the rest of us who this might have seemed like we're talking about somebody else this morning. Father, help us to have the right kind of heart kind of heart of compassion the desire to help and to rescue and the desire to serve now Lord we want most of all for anyone in here who's never experienced the grace of Christ in their life to bow their heart before him today and trust him as Lord and master and savior Even as you opened Lydia's heart and she responded to you, Lord, I'd ask that you would be opening hearts here this morning. And that as you do, we would be willing and obedient to follow you, to trust you. Lord, would you work your will in us, even now, In Jesus' name, amen.